When the NFL experts were analyzing the Seattle Seahawks' 2012 draft choices, the highest grade they gave was a C, and one of the critics even gave them an F. Among those who were drafted that day by the Seahawks in the third round was Russell Wilson, an aspiring quarterback. The pundits praised Wilson's intangibles, using terms like leader, confident, winner. But they were quick to add that he had a big limitation, namely his size. You see, Russell Wilson is only 5 feet 10 inches tall. And you say, well, that's about average, isn't it? For the general population of men, maybe that's about average. But in the NFL, especially for a quarterback has, who has to look over his offensive line, and by my calculations, I looked this up on the Internet, got no conclusive evidence, so I went to the roster of the Seattle Seahawks, did the math, and their average offensive lineman is 6 feet 5 inches tall and weighs 315 pounds. Not only does the quarterback have to look over them, he has to look around them. They're so large. And the whole purpose of his being able to look over them or around them is because he has a receiver or two streaking downfield to whom he has to connect with a pass. Well, the analysts were quick to add as well that the size of Russell Wilson did not bode well for him and his NFL future, or for the Seahawks. Their success ratio was not going to be very high. Fast forward two more years. 2014, the Super Bowl. Guess who the quarterback was in that game on the winning team? Russell Wilson, Seattle Seahawks. You see, the critics overlooked Russell Wilson's biggest intangible. He's an alien. Please turn with me to the book of First Peter, and I'll explain. First Peter, chapter 1, as we begin our study of the book of First Peter. Today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whichever version you have with you today. First Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Russell Wilson is just another in a long line of aliens who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light by the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's one in a long line, beginning with Abraham, who is the progenitor of great people of faith. His story is told beginning in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. And near the end of his life, At the death of his wife, Sarah, when he was 147 years old, she dying at the age of 137, they were in the promised land, but they had yet to settle down and call any one piece of ground their own. So he went to those in the area where she died, which later became known as Hebron, and he said to them, I am a stranger, a sojourner in this land. I need to buy some ground from you. This great man of faith, Abraham, like Russell Wilson, was a stranger, a sojourner, an alien in this world. Fast forward to Moses, the great giver of the law. Moses said when his first son Gershom was born that he gave him that name because that name means a stranger there. Because he said, I I am a stranger in the land of Midian. I am an alien. In fact, he was saying, I am an alien in this world. I'm a sojourner in this world. Let's go a little further into the history of Israel. King David, in the 39th Psalm, the 12th verse, he describes himself 
as a stranger like all of his fathers. And undoubtedly, he had Abraham in mind. He also would have had Moses in mind. He had his own father, Jesse, in mind. Maybe his great-grandfather, Boaz, was in his mind as well. Christ followers are to be known as aliens in this world. And as I've thought about the whole idea of aliens, I've been observing people a little more closely, and I have run across people whom I believe probably are aliens in America. And they are Anglo-aliens, I might add. And I've noticed that they talk differently than I do. They act differently than I do. They dress differently than I do. I'm told when an American goes to Europe, it's a no-brainer for Europeans. They know immediately that they're aliens because of the way we dress. We dress differently than Europeans, at least most of us do. Also, aliens are, in most cases, different in their purpose. What I've noticed about aliens in America is they have a different motor running in their drive engine in their lives. We, as followers of Jesus, are to be different in a similar way. Jesus says, referring to Gentiles, to his disciples, this is what he says, do not be like them. We are not to be like those who are in the world. We were in the world, but now we've been called out of the world, and we are no longer to be of the world. We are to be different. Take Russell Wilson as an example. He is engaged as of last month to Ciara Harris, who is a well-known singer. And he announced along with her that when they began their courtship about a year ago, that they were going to abstain from sexual activity until they were married. Isn't that a novel idea? 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. He takes that seriously. He is a man who is a humble man. He's a great leader as the pundits anticipated he would be in the NFL. But he's a man who's humble in the way that he submits to the authorities whom God has placed over him. Look at the last command in verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. What you perhaps would not know, and I would not have known had I not read an article in ESPN, the magazine, written by a lady named Taffy Ackner. I would not have known this. But from an early age, Russell Wilson decided that he would be coachable. He would submit himself to those that God placed over him, and he would follow their leadership. In fact, when he went to North Carolina State, where he first played college football, early on, one of the staffers said to him, jokingly, I might add, you know, Wilson, you are high maintenance. And he took it seriously. He didn't receive it as a joke. And he bugged that staffer over and over again to point out ways in which he demonstrated that he was a high-maintenance athlete because he wanted not to stick out in the negative way and be a burden to anyone. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, the Bible says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That is the clothing which Russell Wilson wears. He dresses himself... In humility. He's quite confident. He's a great young man in every way, but his spirituality takes priority over any other influence in his life. We've seen in his purpose. Listen to what the author of the article that I gained this information from says about him. Wilson sees himself not as a quarterback who is religious. Listen carefully but as a Christian sent by God to become a quarterback and a Christian example. Do you see the nuance, that very important difference? And I don't know about Taffy, if 
she's a believer or not, but she was one upon whom a great impression was made. She went on to write, Russell Wilson is someone who endeavors to play great football so he can continue to have a platform upon which to display his leadership and his faith. Now, let me make an application to us. Do you know that I am not a pastor sent here to preach and teach and care for the flock of God? I am a Christian who Christ wants to be Lord over so that he can use me with the gifts he's given me to draw attention to himself. That would apply to you and your profession. Whatever your calling in life is as a follower of Christ, just as surely as Russell Wilson sees him in the way in which he sees himself, that should be true of you and of me. Because Christians are different. I'm talking about the best variety of a follower of Jesus is different, is truly an alien, a stranger, a sojourner, then they are often misunderstood and maligned. When Russell Wilson announced publicly that he and Ciara were going to refrain from sexual intercourse until they were married, this is what he said in an interview. He said, God has anointed us and called us to do something miraculous, special. And it would be pretty miraculous to, at his stage in life and her stage in life, and they're drawing to one another to refrain from sexual activity. That was pretty cool. But he had in mind something more than that, much more than that, that God would use them as a couple. Now, here's what's interesting about Ciara, who some would say, and probably would be right, has had something of a questionable past in relationships with men. This is what she said. I had come to the place in my life where I was asking God to give me a God-fearing man to be my husband. I didn't know who he was, but that's what I was asking the Lord for. And then the Lord brought Russell into my life. And then Russell said, I believe God has put us together. When that news hit the media circuit, do you know what people began to do? Commentators began to write satirical articles or comments about that statement which Russell Wilson had made. They misunderstood him, and therefore they maligned him. And it will be true for us if we are truly who we are to be in Jesus Christ. If we say we are going to follow Jesus We're not going to be like the rest of the world. We're going to follow Jesus Christ. We too will be misunderstood. And we too will be maligned. When Russell was negotiating, or at least his agent was negotiating a new contract, he made the comment, if the Lord wills, the contract will get done. If he doesn't, it's okay. And then someone who read that made the comment, God doesn't belong in Russell Wilson's contract negotiations. Well, again, the world doesn't understand the way we think, right? They don't have any clue. Russell Wilson understands that it doesn't hurt that he makes millions and millions of dollars, of course. He was going to make that kind of money anyway. But beside the point, he understands that God gives him the power to make wealth. And he gives him that in order that he can represent the Lord more fully with the resources that God has entrusted to him. And that's true for us also. Do you remember what happened the second Super Bowl that Russell Wilson quarterbacked the Seahawks in? Do you remember what happened? It looked like The Seahawks were going to pull it off. They had come from behind throughout the playoffs. It looked like they were going to win again. They were inside the five-yard line, and I and every other armchair quarterback said, this is a time to give it to the beast. Give it to Marshawn Lynch. He can get two or three yards with no trouble at all, and they would score, and the game was on ice. But what did Russell do? Russell faked it to Lynch, dropped back, threw it, and a guy darted in front of him and caught the pass, intercepted, game over. Super Bowl loss. Russell said, and he reported this, he said, after I had taken three steps, I sensed the Lord was saying to me, 
I made that interception happen because I want to help you to become a better leader. Loss of a Super Bowl helps someone become a better leader? Well, I don't understand that, do you? Well, I do understand it. We understand it. Because the Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this man, we need to pray for him a lot. Because he's got a big target on his back. He's kind of like Tim Tebow was. You know what happened to him. But we pray that God will continue to use him. Do you know God chooses aliens to use them? To give the world a picture of what he is like? God chooses aliens to do his bidding. Now let's, in the remaining time that we have, explore various aspects of being chosen by God. Let's begin as we look back at chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Let's begin by considering the fact of being chosen for those of us who know Jesus Christ. Let's read it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which would be in the area that we call northern Turkey today, who are chosen. It is a fact in a major biblical theme that we are chosen by God if we are His children. The Old Testament is replete with references, but I'm going to mention one, and I encourage you to look it up if you want to now or later. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God says this through Moses to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you as a possession for his own people. Out of all the peoples of the face of the earth, God has chosen you. Then let's go to the New Testament. And if you want to turn there, I would ask you to do that because we're going to look at four or five references in the New Testament, which are merely representative, not exhaustive, but some of the references. Let's begin with something which Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, is there anything difficult to understand about that statement? Did I choose Jesus? Did you choose Jesus, if you know Him? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, let's go to the book of Acts, the next book, to the 13th chapter, in the 48th verse. Acts 13, 48. Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel, and in 48 of Acts 13, Luke reports, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many had, who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those who heard the gospel and had been appointed to eternal life by whom, that's a passive verb, by whom, by God, they believed. Those who were appointed believed. Now let's go to the next book, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. Romans 11, 3 through 5, report a conversation that Elijah had when he faced off 450 prophets of the Canaanite god Baal. And look what he says in verse 3 as Paul quotes him. Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Then Paul narrates here, but what is the divine response to him? I have kept, God says, for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. In other words, a group of believing Jews, descendants of Abraham in the flesh, who are 
believers in God. And it was by God's gracious choice. Literally, the phrase is the choice of God's grace. It was his choice that anybody, including this remnant referred to, anybody is the result of his gracious choice. Now turn a few more books to the back of your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So here again, we are confronted with this great biblical truth that there is in fact a truth that God chose us to be His children. Let's go two more books toward the back to the book of Colossians chapter 3 and look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. We've been chosen by God. Is this beginning to seem like a recurring theme in the Scripture? Now let's return to the book of First Peter. And as we return there, we need to realize that we are people who are chosen by God. If we're God's people, He has chosen us. It's His doing, primarily. It's all His doing, really, as we're going to see a little bit later. Now, I wonder if there's anybody here who's struggling a little bit with this idea. You're saying, okay, He's going to get on this predestination kick. He's on the election theme. Well, look, I'm just trying to rightly divide the word of truth. Is this in the Bible, or should we tear this page out? It's in the Bible. Should we tear all those other pages out? We'd end up with a much smaller Bible than we now have if we did not acknowledge this truth. We need to remember that God is not like us. We have the penchant of creating God in our own image, painting Him with our own imaginations as opposed to what the Bible says, what He says about Himself. In Psalm 50, 21, this is what God says. You thought I was just like you. Well, He's not just like us. He is holy, holy, holy. He is set apart by His own design and by His own will. The Bible says the things that are revealed belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord. You know, the Lord says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When my way of thinking contradicts the Word of God, guess who's wrong? I'm wrong. And even though it may not make the best sense to me, I need to remember that my mind at its best still has some corruption in it. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else who can understand it. You say, well, what does that have to do with the mind? A careful study of the Bible and its usage of the word heart would yield that the heart in my life and in your life is made up of my mind, my emotions, and my will. Time will not permit... For me to give you the references, if you want to talk to me afterwards, I would be more than happy to give you references which substantiate what I've just said. So my mind is deceitful. And that's why I need God's Word to correct faulty thinking in my life. And the same is true for you. So we need to grapple with the fact of our being chosen. Here's the second thing with regard to this matter of being chosen that is referred to in our text the basis of our being chosen. Let's read again, beginning where we left off at the last of verse 1, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The basis of our being chosen is the foreknowledge of God the Father. 
Interestingly, the verb form of this word foreknowledge, which is used only one more time, the noun form is used one more time, the verb form is used five times, this word family is used seven times in the New Testament, that word is found in the first chapter. But before we look there, hold your place here and go back to Acts chapter 2 with me. And we're going to look at verses 22 and 23 taken from the heart of the Pentecostal sermon preached by none other than the Apostle Peter, who is the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through whom God gave us the book of First Peter. Let's read verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was by the foreknowledge of God that Jesus was handed over. Now, Suppose with me a moment as to when God had that foreknowledge and what that foreknowledge actually means. Before we do that, to get better clarification, let's return to 1 Peter and look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Verse 19 of 1 Peter 1, But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ... For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, some people would say the idea of foreknowledge is that God in his omniscience looked down the corridor of time and he saw Jesus and he saw that Jesus was one who was predisposed to lay down his life for his friends. And he saw, I'm going to pick him because I know what he's going to do in history, when he invades human history, I know what he's going to do, and I'm going to pick him to be the Savior of the world. Do you think that's the way God reasoned when he was planning our salvation? Is that the way he thought? I doubt it, seriously. And consequently, I do not think that when God saw me, and he did see me in time, that I would be born to a mother and a father who loved Christ and were intent upon introducing me to Christ, and that I would be raised in their home, and they saw to it that I was part of a church like this church, which valued people no matter how old or how young they were, and where I heard the gospel over and over and over again, that I would receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And therefore, he said, okay, Here's a good prospect for me to choose. I'm going to choose Mike Woods because that's what he's going to do in the year 1957. That's what he's going to do. He's going to make a commitment. I don't think that's the way the Lord works. In fact, a careful study of this whole idea of foreknowledge or foreknowing is the idea of God predetermining to choose me, to know me. And the word translated know is the word which means to know me, not just intellectually, but intimately, to know me. I think of Jeremiah, the great prophet, the weeping prophet. And perhaps you remember God's call on his life recorded in Jeremiah 1.5. God said to him, before you were born, I knew you. In intimacy, I knew you before you were born. That's the word yada, used in Genesis 4 to describe the relationship of sexual intercourse between Adam and Eve as they knew each other in the intimacy of the marriage bond. He said, before you were born, I knew you and consecrated you. That is, I set you apart in eternity. This boggles the mind for sure, but it's the testimony of Scripture. So the basis of our being chosen is the foreknowledge of God the Father. And you probably already picked up on this. We're being introduced to each member of the Trinity, as we would call it, the Godhead here, beginning with God the Father. And then we see what the means of our being chosen is. Look at the means. If you go back at our, to our book that we're studying, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
See, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Now, what does sanctify mean? It means to be set apart. And the word translated sanctifying work here is a word which is not the normal word for sanctification. It is in the word family, but the ending indicates that in Peter's mind, he was talking about a process of sanctifying. So the work of the Holy Spirit sets us apart to begin with when we are born again. But in addition to that, he continues to work in our lives to make us who God wants us to become as his chosen. The idea of sanctification is the idea, as I've mentioned, primarily of being set apart. But it's also the idea of being cleansed from sin and to enjoy a movement toward freedom from sin in our lives as those who've been chosen. We know what Jesus says, the tool that the Spirit uses. It's the Word of God. Sanctify them by your truth, Jesus says to the Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Your Word is truth. And the purpose of our being sanctified, it's very obvious here, isn't it? What is it? To obey Jesus Christ. To be different. And let me just stop here before I forget it. Peter was not your premier theologian in the New Testament era. We know who he is. Paul's the premier theologian. Some would say John would rank right up there with him, and I would tend to agree. And we're not to compare and contrast. But we know Peter, he, he had a heart for the Lord that was hot. He loved the Lord. He was used mightily to the Lord. But he... Although he was not a great theologian in comparison maybe to Paul or John, what we do know is he understood the importance of having good theology before you start giving ways of applying the gospel to your daily life. This introduction is jam-packed with theology, isn't it? The doctrine of election, the doctrine of the Godhead. I mean, it's just brimming over with theology. And then what we're going to look at, God willing, next week in verses 3 and following, we're going to see he continues to lay a solid theological foundation in this passage of Scripture. But then the rest of the book, beginning with verse 14 and going all the way to the end, is what is called exhortation. It's hortatory in nature is what the scholars describe it as being, meaning it's exhorting and challenging people to do certain things, to live like aliens, actually, is what God is calling us to do. But we're to obey Christ and in response to the Word of God. And then he goes on to say, not only to obey Jesus, but to be sprinkled with His blood. Now, there are various interpretations of this, but I'm agreed with those who would say that this is a reflection of what took place after Moses had received the law and the book of the law, the covenant, and the laws associated with the covenant that God had made through the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 24 of Exodus, verses 3 through 8, Moses, under leadership of God, told some young men to get a bull, bring the bull to an altar which Moses had had constructed. It was a big altar on 12 pillars, each pillar representing one of the tribes of Israel. And the animal was sacrificed and put on the offering as a peace offering. And then the blood, half of it was placed on the altar itself, but another half was retained in a basin, the Scripture says. And then what did Moses do? To seal the covenant that God had made, what he did, he took the blood of the bull and he sprinkled it over the people as a sign that God had made this covenant with them. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, was raised from the dead, there was the new covenant which was established. A new way of God dealing with us. An unconditional covenant. And this is, I believe, the purpose of our being sanctified is so that, number one, we obey Jesus. Number two, we walk in unconditional Salvation because of our having been chosen by God. Here's the fourth thing we see in this passage. We've looked at the fact of our being chosen. 
We've looked at the basis of our being chosen, the foreknowledge of God the Father. We just finished looking at the means by which we have been chosen, which is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's consider, and this is not in the text altogether, part of it is, but I'll draw from some other places in Scripture. Let's consider the necessity of our being chosen as over against our choosing the Lord. We would never have chosen God. Do you know that? There's not a man or a woman in this room or a man or a woman alive who would have chosen God if it were left up to you. You say, wait a minute. I received Christ. Yes, you did. Thank the Lord you did. The Bible says, but as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We typically stop right there, though. But does anyone here know what the next verse says? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man. Does that ring a bell? Nor of the will of the flesh, but born of whom? God. We've been born of God. We would never have sought the Lord. In Romans chapter 3, this is what the Bible says. There is no one who seeks for God. No one. Jesus echoes this in a way when he says, The Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and save that which is lost. The Son of Man came for that purpose. To seek and to save that which is lost. We would never have chosen God. I'm going to give you three reasons from Scripture why we would never have chosen God, any one of which would be enough. But just so we will cover the primary peaks as it relates to this whole matter of our not being inclined at all to choose God. First of all, we are depraved. That means there's nothing in us, any part of our personality, any member of our body that is not predisposed to sin. It's just who we are. Why? Because sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, that man being Adam, and that's in Romans 5. If I'll jump just a moment to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the Bible says, all have died in Adam. When Adam sinned, he set the stage for all of us being born with a sinful nature. We don't have to be taught to do bad. Did you have to teach your children to do bad? Did someone teach you to do bad? You did it, and I did it. It's in our nature. We are sons of Adam. And our depravity prohibits our being able to wipe away our sin. You know Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth? Act 5, scene 1, she is given to sleepwalking. She's sleepwalking in the castle that her husband and she inhabit where they had plotted the deaths of many would-be and actual enemies. And she's walking and she's sleepwalking. She's wringing her hands and she's uttering, Out, damn spot, out. And what's she talking about? The stain of blood on her hands as she had colluded with her husband for the death of so many people, just to preserve their place of power. She couldn't wash it out, could she? She couldn't. Why? Because we, in our depravity, cannot wipe away our own sin. In Proverbs 29, 20, let me clarify, verse 9, the question is raised, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure, from sin. Nobody can say that. In Psalm 143, verse 2, the Bible says about God, your eyes can see no living man who is righteous. There's nobody who's righteous. Nobody. We're all unrighteous apart from the grace of our Lord. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the leopard change its spots? Well, the obvious answer to that question is no. And then he says, so do you think you are able to do good who are accustomed to do evil? No, we can't. We are depraved. 
And we are people who need to be chosen by God if we have any hope of having salvation and eternal life. Here's the second reason why we need to be chosen. It's because we're dead. We're DOA. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2.1. Paul writes, But you were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we... Listen carefully. Even when we were dead, gave us life together with Christ. He made us alive. What does that say? I was deader than a doornail spiritually. And then God in His mercy and His grace infused life into me. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you know, grace is the operating agent in my salvation. And it's interesting that Peter concludes this passage that we're looking at today, that the grace be multiplied to these to whom he wrote. We need just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. All of us do. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 to further emphasize the fact that this life that we have now, if we know Christ, is something we have received. And the faith necessary to trigger this life was given to us. Look at the way in which... Peter introduces Second Peter, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith. Do you get it? Received a faith. Faith is a gift. Your faith, you don't even have enough faith to be saved, nor do I. We don't have any faith at all. We have to be born again in order to be made alive. Dead people, what can they do? Can dead people think? Can dead people choose? Can dead people do anything? But the Bible is clear. If we were to go to Colossians 2.13, we would see that Paul reiterates what he says in Ephesians 2 about our being dead in our transgressions, but we've been made alive with Christ. We had to be brought back to life. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, well, that's Paul and that's Peter. I want to know what Jesus says because he's my main man. And you're right to have that perspective. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. The Son gives life to whom he wishes. It doesn't say he gives life to everybody. He gives life to whom he wishes. Here's the question. Has he given you life? If He has, it's because He chose you to impart His life to. Here's the third answer to the question, why is it necessary? What's the first answer? I'm depraved. What's the second answer? I'm dead. These are truths that are true of me before I come to Christ. Here's the third. Because I am darkened in my understanding. And I am divorced, as it were, from the life of God, is what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 18. Blinded. I'm blind. I can't see it. How many times have you talked to people? Maybe in your own experience before you came to Christ, people would talk about Jesus and you just kind of wonder, what in the world are they talking about? These people are nuts. Well, they're aliens. What do you expect? They're different. Why? They are chosen by God. They understand. It has nothing to, be to do with being intelligent. Or being educated, it has to do with the revelation of God by the Spirit. We needed God's grace, didn't we? Turn back to Romans for a moment, chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 10 and following. Romans 9.10 says about Rebekah, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also who had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Who were the twins? Who was the firstborn? Jacob. The secondborn, Esau. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who called. 
it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Interesting, isn't it? God chose the younger. That doesn't make sense. It was not the custom of the day. The firstborn would be the primary heir. But not so. Why? Because before Jacob and Esau were even born, they had not done anything good or bad. They were chosen by the Lord. They needed the grace of God. It was God's gracious choice, not based upon what you and I do, but upon His grace. As we saw in Romans eleven six, it was the choice of grace that God exercised when He chose the 7,000 plus Elijah who had not bowed the knee to the prophet Baal. We are chosen, I'm sounding like a broken record, but I must say this one more time, not because we are better than anybody else or because we're smarter. Look at Peter, the author of this great epistle that we're beginning to study today. Peter, who was described by the elite religionists of Israel, they said he is an untrained and uneducated man. He's an alien. He's a nothing. And then we read together, and this is so beautiful. I hope you took it in when Alan read it from 1 Corinthians 26. Listen, just listen to it one more time. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the things that were despised, and the things which were not yet He chose those things to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It was because... Now, here's the clincher. It was because of Him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus because of what He did. If you are in Christ Jesus, it has nothing to do with what you did or what you might do if you're not in Christ Jesus. It had everything to do with the Lord and His grace to us when He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Now, as we finish this morning, very quickly, and this does no justice to these outcomes of being chosen, but I'm just going to touch on them. The first of which is, God is glorified in this doctrine of election because He's done it all. In 1 Corinthians 1.31, Therefore, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in whom? The Lord. God is glorified. And we are humbled. That's the second outcome. Do we need to be humbled? It's by my nature to be proud. To put myself in the place of God. We need to be humbled. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is the most humbling doctrine, I think, in the Bible. The doctrine of election. I cannot contribute anything to my salvation. Nothing. And the minute I try to, I'm going to find a way to boast about it. Because that's my inclination. And it's yours too, if you're honest. Here's the third outcome. Aliens are tranquilized. That's the way a lot of people look at us who have turned our hearts over to Christ. Isn't that the way they look at us? They feel so sorry for us. You've just been brainwashed. What, what are you on anyway? What kind of phase are you through, going through? One of my dearest friends, I won't call his name. He lives here in El Paso. So many of you would know him. We've been friends for over 35 years. He's like a brother to me. And when he came to Christ... He was on fire for the Lord, and he still is to this day. He loves the Lord, serves the Lord faithfully. He's a professional like many of you. And this is what he told me. He said, you know what my mother and father and my sister are saying about me? They're saying this is just another phase that 
and he called his name, is going through. He'll get over it. It's like martinis last year. It's this now, this Christian thing. You know, 35 years later, he's not over it. And he'll never be over it. You know why? Because he has been saved by the grace of God and he's been radically changed. And he's suited for heaven because of it. We're tranquilized. In this passage, as Peter closes it, he says, Grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Peace. Peace with God. Thanks be to God who's given us peace. Now we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ having been justified by faith. We have peace with God. There's been a treaty that's unbreakable that God has made this new covenant. We are His forever because He chose us in Christ. And it's the peace of God. Some of you here are so torn up in your hearts this morning. You don't have the peace of God. The Bible says we who know Christ can have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Last outcome, aliens are strengthened. Psalm 84.5 says this. In effect, David says it. Or Asaph, I think it is. It's not David who wrote this psalm. But he says basically that people have their strength in you who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. We're aliens. We're on pilgrimage. We have the strength of God. We don't have to rely on our own ingenuity, our own industry, our own strength. It's the power of God living in us which makes us different. Thank the Lord. So that we can be wholly set apart. Now the question some of you are asking is, maybe only one person, but there's somebody asking this question. How do I know I'm chosen? Well, let me just respond to that question with a few questions as we finish. Do you understand what I've said today? Has it become clear to you that God is the one who saves you in total? He's the one who saves you. You can't do anything to contribute to your salvation. Do you understand that? Do you believe what the Scriptures say. That there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Is that your understanding? Do you believe that? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned away from running your own life? That's a surefire indication that you are one of the elect. And are you seeing an ever-growing hunger in your heart to obey Him? Well, then again, that is an indication that you are one of the elect. You're saying, I don't have any of those things, so I guess I'm out. Well, let me just say this. You're here today, and you have been spoken to, perhaps, by the Spirit of God to indicate to you that God is the one who can save you. And if I were you, and you're sensing that, I would give my life to the Lordship of Christ right now and ask Him to do for you what you could never do for yourself, and that's forgive your sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this Word, and we know it does not return to You empty. You accomplish whatever You set out to do, and so we thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.